Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the official Tennis.com podcast featuring professional coach and community leader, Kamal Murray. Welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. I'm your host, Kamal Murray, and we are here with one of the most famous voices <laughs> in tennis. You, if, you, if you can't sleep and you wake up at 11 p.m. or midnight and you hear this soothing voice actually <laughs> commentating on a match by himself, one of the few people who can carry a match by himself is Lee Shiras. Lee, welcome to the show. Uh, well, you're too kind. Thank you, though. It's uh, great to be a part of this. Thanks. Well, let me ask you, because that is something that I noticed. So a couple of years ago, when I first got into business, I walked into the studio at 5 a.m. And you've been there since 2 a.m. <laughs> commentating matches by yourself. When do you get to a point where you can do that? Yeah, well, you know, it's funny. I, I think I'm something of a Swiss army knife at Tennis Channel. I can do a little bit of everything. I can na- now sort of analyze the match if need to. I can host. I can do the single calls if required. So, I mean, it comes with a little bit of experience and uh, maybe not falling into the urge to talk too much. You know, sometimes you just got to let the pictures tell the story. So uh, I think it takes a, a little bit of time to feel comfortable just being they're solo. Of course, you've got, you know, a crew of guys in the production office who are there with you too. So uh, I'm not the only ones up early, but it's, it's a team operation like anything. I do like that collaborative spirit, whether it's two in the morning or eight in the morning. So uh, yeah, but it, it comes with time. I mean, you'll get the hang of it if you got a shot. So, so for those of those listening, when I commentate, I'm like the analyst and somebody else is the host who brings us into commercial, takes us to commercial, maybe prompts the question, Right. You know, that's like the hard part. I'm the easy part. I just get to comment live and, you know, do some research <laughs> on stats and provide some color, perhaps some personal stories. So, you know, that that's sort of the tag team. If you're watching a tennis match from here on, you'll be able to tell now the host is the person taking in, taking it in and out of commercial, uh, reading the ads. Right. And then the analyst is the person that's just locked in on the tennis. So to be able to do both, Leaf, is... <laughs> A skill. Now, let me ask you this. Does your rate go up when you can do both? (laughs) Sadly, it does not. Uh, Sadly, it does not. But, you know, the funny thing is when I came out of the tour uh, and I was asked the first time to, would you like to commentate on the finals? It was a tournament in Stowe, Vermont, I believe. And, of course, being available, I had lost earlier in the tournament, which made me available to work on the weekend. So the fact that I couldn't play tennis was a fact that got me my first gig as a commentator. But again, I started as an analyst um, and learned the ropes about television from that chair. And then uh, gradually over the years, you know, I evolved into something of a host as well. So, um, you know, I've been in both chairs and it's, it's a nice way to see a tennis match. And like you say, you bring your expertise as a coach, a former player, um, the team aspect as a college player and your relationship with players and you can talk tennis and that's pretty much what the analyst does. So you need to have a level of expertise to be interesting uh, and also have a few good takes. And like you said, be anecdotal at times. 
you know, what worked for a player at a certain time that I've had success with. And, you know, so it's, it's a collaborative spirit again, between the host and the analyst. So you talked about interesting, you said, you said the word interesting and, you know, guys, we want to do a little bit, a little bit of a Wimbledon wrap wrap up, because I think this has been one of the most interesting Wimbledons of all time. You know, just if you look at solely the backstory behind not having the Russians and the Belarusians there, right? And what that does to a draw, right? And I think that, you know, when you see the draw come out and you notice that on the women's side, there's probably seven names that are missing and totally reshuffles the draw, reshuffles the matchups. That makes what happens, what just happened, happen. Where Rybakina sneaks and gets to the final of a slam. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think no surprise Anj Jabor got there. But let me ask you this. Of the Russians, obviously Sabalenka, Azarenka, right? Of the people who were not present on the women's side first, whose who's absence was most noticed at this tournament? Yeah, a good question. I mean, there, there's a group of players from Russia and Belarus who, you know, are impactful in the women's game. But you, I mean... At the top of my head, I'd always think of Saba. I think she was a former semifinalist or before. So she's had a breakthrough on the grass. And this might have been one of those moments for her where she'd gone to the second week. She'd made a step into the final four. You know, was it her time to make the next step? You know, perhaps even play to raise the Venus Rosewater dish. Who knows? Uh, you know, but this is how politics and history and all this unfolding before us really did shape the tournament. I think you're absolutely right. And I don't think it shaped it in a good way. Sadly, that's uh, that uh, sort of intersection of politics and sport is not always uh, uh, sort of a satisfying mix. It was too bad, really. Uh, I mean, on the men's side, clearly, you know, the world number one wasn't around, which is crazy to think. But for me, on the women's side, I'd say Sabalenka was the most impactful omission in the draw. Yeah, I would agree. Um, I think Azarenka is also probably not a contender for the title. But when you look at, let's say, the round of 128, where the, where the reshuffling really matters, right, in terms of seedings and difference between somebody being a 32 seed versus not being seeded at all, right, I think Azarenka's absence was also impactful, maybe not in, like, round of 16 and beyond, but definitely her absence in the first one or two rounds and reshuffling of the seeds, I, to me, I thought that was one of the sort of middle of the draw secret stories for me. Yeah, no, and Azarenka, you're right, absolutely right. An experienced veteran can play on any surface. She brings a little bit of that wild card because of the experience she has. So, you know, you have to feel like how it all shut down. You talk about the seeds being shoveled. And then as you got into the first week, what did we, you know, we lost Muguruza, Sloan Stevens was out early. I and mean, we had so many players going out early that suddenly opened up the draw beyond the shuffling of the season. Well, I think Benchich lost first round. There are a number of players who were really surprising to see go out and that opened it up even a little bit further. So the surprises did happen, but uh, as you said, this confluence of events made for some real drama. And then you look at on the men's side, uh, the one, the number one player that I think was noticeably absent was Rublev. I think on this surface with that forehand, and the way he's been sort of playing the last, let's say, nine months, I thought his absence was really like sort of glaring in the first couple of rounds. 
Yeah, and you know, may, maybe even more so than Medvedev because of the weapons he possesses. You know, on grass, that sort of accelerated play, it can be very, very dangerous. Um, I mean, it's just, it's a little bit disappointing. I mean, I felt the whole impetus by the ATP and the WTA to remove the points. It just, I don't understand in my mind how that was going to be rewarding for the players. You know, I just didn't understand that. Yeah. And um, I think it was a general consensus that the players and the ATP wanted to do it and the leadership felt strongly about it. But at the same time, you know, it did penalize a lot of the players who were playing and, you know, maybe they should have allowed the Russians to keep their points from the year before, you know, hold them for another 52 weeks. I don't know. I just felt there was some sort of compromise where the points could have stayed in because someone like Rublev, boy, what a dangerous player he could have been uh, in this event. Like you said, forehand out of this world and that kind of weaponry, so dangerous on the grass. And I think he's got a growing awareness how to play from all parts of the court, you know, to back up that kind of weapon and get to the net occasionally. He still struggles a bit with his second serve. And I think his game needs a few more layers here and there, but always a dangerous guy for sure. Well, let me ask you this, because on the men's side, I feel like that draw got gutted, right? We talk about Rublev, Medvedev. And then you look at the number of players that had to pull out with COVID. Berrettini, uh, Chilich. I mean, these are like no small names here. You know, I look at, with those guys still in the draw, does Kyrgios make it past the quarters, right? You know what I mean? Like just that, that whole sort of scenario. Yeah. And I think Kyrgios might've come through a section of the draw where Roberto Batista Gutt uh, pulled out. Yep. Um, but you know, he obviously the wins over, you know, uh, CC pots, those were, those were excellent, but I mean, again, these things happened in the draw and I think it helped Kyrgios get through didn't have that heavyweight experience at Chilich, who was playing well, played well at Roland Garros. You know he's going to play well as a former finalist at Wimbledon. And Berrettini, the defending finalist. So I, it's one of those things that makes tennis so compelling is the draw, how the draw shapes down, how withdrawals, upsets, and, uh, you know, actually players who weren't allowed to play, how that all shaked down. And uh, it made for, you know, maybe that opportunity that Kyrgios took full advantage of. You know, what's interesting, too, is that COVID has added another dimension. I think for a while we thought COVID was over, right? And we got a reminder now of just how impactful that COVID still is in the tour. Because when I look at it from a coach, it's another thing you got to manage now. If you look at Chilich, you look at uh, Batista, Good, you look at Berrettini, how you manage, like as a coach in a slam, you do manage where do we go out to eat? Do we go out to eat? Should we order in? Who should go with us? Should we get together with other teams, right? And when you look at like the number of players that, I mean, it's fun to go out into the village, right? And to go have dinner and to walk down and go eat Indian, right? You know, that kind of thing. But as a coach now, you've got to also manage that because like I've said a million times, winning a slam is not always about the draw and the tennis. It's also about not having anything go wrong, such as, Bed bugs and missing your practice. Like Coco Vandewey almost missed her practice court in 2017, right? You know what I mean? Almost late for the match almost, right? So like not having anything go wrong. And I think that those are three examples where perhaps Berrettini's opportunity to get back to a Wimbledon final went wrong with COVID. 
Yeah. Right. And it could have been, hey, what's my favorite restaurant? Got it. Right. Or went out with this team. Got it. Whatever it is, it was like managing that has to be considered in the U.S. Open because we've seen if you get too lax at Wimbledon, how it can basically gut the draw. Yeah. I know. Excellent point you make. And, you know, I, I think as a coach and a player, you know how coaching matters. It's so important. And there are so many things that a coach has to manage over the course of his players week, month, year. And this is just another one of those things that I think you have to take into consideration, serious consideration. Like you said, do you socialize? Do you go out with your, how much time do you spend in the locker room? You know, this BA5 variant now, it's highly contagious and you can get it now and the numbers are backing it up. You just have to be very careful about that. So this is another consideration for coaches and it can affect how tournaments are played. It can affect the players who play. And I think even with Berrettini, I believe he was on the practice courts and there was some concern about, you know, his saying hello to other players, his greeting other players. You know, how does that impact, you know, if someone happens to have it? Um, so, boy, it's a, it's a tough world out there. But like you say, another layer of concern for coaches to think about. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. So let me ask you this. Um... What did you think about Kyrgios and the red cap? I mean, for, for me, it was like, you know, you had, this, you had the fine for the shoes, you had the fine for the cap, um, and then they put you on court one, right? So you, didn't, you don't do it on center. Um, but then you get to the final, and he comes out with all white shoes, but then in the end, he does the red cap. What did you think about that? Yeah, I just, uh, you know, the red hat, I mean, it carries so many connotations nowadays, obviously, in the political spectrum. So there's always seems like it it was just such a powerful image. You know, here we are at all white Wimbledon dress is, you know, considered a, a sign of respect to the venue and to the history of the game. So Nick always seems to be pushing buttons. You know, he just can't resist it. And so much discussion about Nick and you know, his behavior. I do think at times the media tends to focus on misbehavior when it wasn't as important as it seemed to be in my eyes. Obviously, he's going to have words with his team and he's going to misbehave here and there over the course of a match, no doubt. He has his ups and downs. But I thought his tennis did more of the talking. However, I wasn't a big fan of the red hat myself. So I, it just struck a discordant note to see the red hat uh, at such an important moment in our tennis, you know, life that that day, handing out trophies on center court. Yeah, I, I thought it was a message that you all can't control me. I got here doing it my way. And what are you going to do? Walk on the court and kick me off? I'm just <laughs> going to continue to show you I'm going to do it my way. Right. And I think that. Yes. You can never take it away from a player who gets there. Um, but there's a lot of asterisks by this Wimbledon. Yeah. No but you know what's funny? I bet you anybody, you know, yes, they took the player's points away. I have a funny feeling the HP might be taking away some of his prize money for oh. that red hat. <laughs> yeah, it is. As a former player who had a few fines in his day, that's never a good feeling. What? For wearing a hat now, it's, I mean, I, 
you know, th that'll be addressed. You know, that's always a point of concern. And, um, you know, I think Nick is always on double secret probation. He's got to be careful about how far he does go. Um, but yeah, uh, well, you won't be buying the beers, I guess, at Wimbledon Village, maybe. Cut into that prize money check a little bit. I know. <laughs> yeah, in addition to the tax, right? You're like, People forget um, about the tax. The tax is a very real deal when you get it. It's going to be... I know they tried to reduce the tax in London because the players were complaining about it. I think they've got an athlete tax somewhere between 15 and 20%. Yeah. So you take that off the top and then any other indiscretions you might have to pay for. It be an expensive, uh, expensive week. Yeah. So let me ask you this then. Does Nick Kyrgios get to another slam final? Does he have the focus, the ability to put together another two weeks with a full draw? Yeah. Excellent question. I, I mean, I think he does. I think he's got the talent to do it. Can he marshal all the resources required to win seven, three out of five set matches in a full draw, not one that's gutted by withdrawals and players not being allowed to play. And that's where it can be a little tough. The road through can be a real minefield with how talented it is out there. So I think he can do it. He's going to have to continue to serve big, keep his head about him. You know, those are big questions to ask. Can he do it? I think he can. He reminds me a little bit of John McEnroe back in my era. John was blessed with so much talent. You always wonder, though, was would his emotions and his temper get in the way? And he was able to manage that enough to allow his best tennis to come out. And he became one of the game's greats. I'm not sure Nick has that level of achievement in him, but I think he's got another slam final, maybe in New York on the fast hard courts. I don't know. That'd be perfect. <laughs> but one of the questions I thought I was saying, so the semifinal, Rafa, obviously not 100%, chose to pull out. In my mind, I was thinking, okay, he's playing Nick. Nick has proven to be able to beat him. If there was anybody else in that semifinal other than Nick Kyrgios, does Rafa bandage it up, painkiller it up, and give it a go? Or did the fact that it was Nick Kyrgios with sort of their history, with Nick having several wins against them, did that consider like, eh, if I'm not 100%, I don't want to go down again? Good. You ask good questions. Uh, is, must be, you must be good at this. Because <laughs> that's a good question. You know, I, I think Rafa probably had to manage that moment and look at what was across the net. But also, I think he had to look deep inside. You know, can I, I mean, I thought his win over Taylor Fritz was almost miraculous really i thought taylor was playing amazing tennis and somehow despite the pain he was able to find a way to serve effectively enough you know he kind of adjusted his motion and got in enough decent serves to keep taylor at bay uh, just an amazing effort i just don't think he had another one of those in him so i think it was a fairly realistic decision that he had to make ultimately more about the injury than it was about nick but i'm sure you know he also didn't want to you know embarrass himself by having to withdraw in the middle of a match you know because that's something really important to rafa you know he has such tremendous respect and admiration for the game i just felt he probably wouldn't want to withdraw or retire and that was one of the reasons i think maybe he'd stayed in there against taylor he said i'll just give this a shot and i've got two days to recover we'll see if i can do it but um yeah so i i i would say uh I think Rafa, is he ready to go? He would have gone, but I, I think he knew it was not going to happen. <laughs> so I always like to look back at draws and I say the one player, like in the middle of like, let's say the Thursday, right? Third round, 
I sort of start to look at the draw, see where it opened up, see who my pick is to win it. And I'll say on the women's side this time, I thought it was Kvitova's year. At, at the third round, I said, oh, it's Kvitova. Given who went out, Mugu went out, I was like, this should be Kvitova's title. And I was a little bit shocked that she didn't make it all the way through, given her two previous Wimbledons, right? Yeah. Given the way she was playing, having won um, a, week, a week before. And given the absences, I was like, oh, this is her time. You know what? I actually had that feeling in the back of mind too, because I, you know, we followed her progress in esport, and she was playing so well there. Didn't have a particularly good season before esport, but got back on the grass, got some wins together, and that's where suddenly she's super dangerous because she's a little bit like our champion at Wimbledon, who you get hot, play that big game, and you can see what it can do for you. You know, she'll have some weeks where she's not particularly good because she's not firing. But when she does get it going, that can, she can be dangerous. So I'm like you. I felt like that was a real opportunity for her with the kind of the openings in the draw. I forget where her draw was. She came through. I think she got to the fourth round. Yeah. But um, it was, you know, maybe a missed opportunity for her because you're not sure how many more she has left. I, I have a feeling just between you and me, I, I think this might be her last season. But uh, we'll see how it goes. Man, that would be such a loss to the game because she is so nice. So yes. just a champion uh, and really, really professional. I mean, just her presence, the way she carries herself uh, for this next crop of players coming up. She's somebody that I think they could benefit from just seeing in the cafeteria. Yeah, exactly. Right? And just how she carries herself, how she treats her team. I mean, you, you, you get these people who are, as they start to lead the game, you see how they mean more to the game other than their play, just in terms of their example. I put her in that category. Yeah, I think she won the Karen Kransky Sportsmanship Award at WTA eight straight years. <laughs> and I think maybe Kim Kleisters was maybe ahead of her. So she's obviously so admired and so beloved on tour. Um, she does sort of set the standard for behavior and dealing with winning and losing, which is one of the toughest things to do on tour. You know, how do you manage the highs and the lows and maintain, you know, sort of a, a personality and a standing that's going to be beneficial for you and for the tour. So I, she really does, as you said, you know, set that standard pretty high. Now, you've been so generous with your time. Uh, but the last question is one that I think we always are monitoring now. And I think after watching Wimbledon, um, I think I'm clear on sort of where I stand. So when Rafa got the two slam advantage on Novak, obviously from <laughs> Novak not being able to play Australia and, you know, then Rafa goes to the French where he's just king. Rafa clearly nearing the end of the road from an injury standpoint. Um, and just his body's just not cooperating at this time. You know, I thought Rafa, let's say after the French would hold the lead. But I think when I look at Novak and how healthy he looks, and if he gets past this whole COVID vaccine thing, Right. And he's available to play all the slams. I don't see any way that Novak does not pass Rafa and actually widen the margin. Yep. You know, no, given, I, the, given the fact he has more longevity, he's got more years in him. Yeah, he does. And he's he's so fit. You know, he doesn't I don't feel like he's lost a step. I mean, he's 35 years old and he continues to set this amazing standard of physicality. And 
you know, he goes down a set to these young challengers, two sets, in fact, to, Yannick, uh, to Sinner, and you feel like it just doesn't bother him. He just finds another gear in his head, in his legs, and in his heart. You know, he's got all those qualities that define sort of that championship quality. And I, I think the young challengers are going to have to find that in themselves now. You know, I think Rafa and Roger and Novak and Andy, they all push themselves to greater heights of elite performance. Mm -hmm. And, you know, someone's going to have to drag some of these young guys along to that level. I think Taylor Fritz is very close. Yannick Sinner is very close. Carlos Alcaraz, all these guys, but they're learning valuable lessons. Who's going to be the first young guy to get these challenges? Because I think you're right. I think Novak in his current form, his physical health, he's got, you know, four or five more majors in him where he could get to 26 or 27. I think that's very realistic. So you're, I think you're right on the money there. And Rafa, he's maybe got another French. Where is, is Roger going to come back and actually make a run? I don't know. Can he do it at 40? I mean, I hope he's like Ken Rosewall, who was winning ATP titles in his early 40s. You know, you hope that Roger can still be around and relevant for maybe another year or two, just as a nice way to finish off, you know, one of the great careers of all time. So, yeah, I think Novak's in a great position. Look out. I think Novak wins two slams a year for the next three years. And then I think, maybe not this year, but that's his own fault, right? Um, <laughs> but I would say 2023 and 2024, he wins two slams. Yeah. I think he takes well, two of the four slams. Are we hearing whispers that he might be back in Australia in 23? You know, I, I don't know. I've been hearing whispers. I don't know how valid they are, but if he's able to play, as you said, four majors a year for two or three more years, I mean, wow. Two a year. Easy. Yeah. Two he's a year. got a shot. But to answer your question, before we wrap up, I think when I look at the young guns or who's going to be the first to emerge, I think it's got to be Alcaraz. I think when you look at his skill set, his, his toughness, but also his physicality, like I feel like when you look at Alcaraz, his body is maturing at a point that's past a great player like Tommy Paul right. or a great player like TFO um, or even a great player like Center. You know, yeah. I just feel like he's got a, a, a stronger body. He's got better balance. And I think he's tougher when he needs to be. And I think those three things will make him the first of the young guns, um, you know, to, to sort of break through. And I, and I don't consider Zverev a young gun anymore. Right. I don't consider team a young gun anymore, right? So those guys are going to, of those two out of four slams, you got to put Zverev at one of them, right? A potential to win one of them. But I think the other one will go to a young guy and it would have to be Alcaraz. Yeah, and I'm yeah. really sure who else you want to put. Center, I think, has a lot of maturity to do from a physicality standpoint. When you start to look at two weeks and seven matches, I don't know he has the legs yet and the shoulders yet to make it through seven. Exactly. I, I agree totally. Center got the brilliant shot making and all that, but I think you're right. He still has another year or two to grow into his body. You know, we saw Zverev like that when he was a, an older teen working with Andy, Mer Andy Murray's former trainer, Jez Green. And they, they really helped shape him physically to be the kind of physical animal he is. And I think you have to see a little bit of that from Sinner developing that physical side to become one of those guys who's going to be knocking on the door majors. But you're right, Alcaraz, he's got a good, strong core. He seems to have better balance because it seems like his center of gravity is a little bit lower than Sinner. Sinner is a little bit higher. Uh, I mean, all these guys are super talented and 
a lot of things can unfold in a draw, but those guys clearly have the edge of who's going to, you know, make that next breakthrough. It, it, Sinner's consistently there. Alcaraz has been knocking on the door, played well in New York last year. So maybe it's going to happen in New York. It's all happening very quickly. I think we're seeing in the women's tour what it's going to be like after Rafa, Roger, and um, Novak depart the game. You're going to see a lot of players scooping up Grand Slam titles like you're seeing on the WTA. So many young, talented players who maybe are sort of that elite championship level of Serena Williams, but they're collecting major titles. And what's going to happen on the men's side when that gang at the top is gone? You know, because I think there have been, what, six guys who've won majors since 2006, other than the big four. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to comprehend how much these guys have dominated the game. But when those guys move aside, we're going to see a lot of that jockeying transition that we're seeing in the WTA now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Last question, I'll let you go. Who is your prediction for the U.S. Open, both on the men's and the women? The men's is probably a little easier, right? But the women's is one that's like, yeah, tricky. So give me your two predictions. Yeah, you know, it's a little bit early. I do like to, I'll give a couple early predictions, but I do reserve the right to maybe adjust them as we get through Toronto and Cincinnati and some of those roads. However, I think you're going to have a very motivated Daniel Medvedev to prove himself. You know, I think... A lot of the Russians who missed out on Wimbledon, they might have, you know, a little something extra in the bag to, to bring to their next performance. I think he's got a real good chance. Um, and, you know, hey, having won the title, he's got the he's got the crown on his head. So someone's going to have to knock him off. Boy, the women's side, you know, I always feel as someone like Belinda Bencic. I, I like how she plays on a fast hardcore. Can she make an impression and make a breakthrough? I also like Amanda Anasimova, the way she's playing. Get her on a fast hard cut with her talent. You know, maybe it's her time. She's already been quarterfinals now, Wimbledon at Roland Garros. Can she, you know, maybe have a big breakthrough in New York? I'd like to see, I'd like to see that. I'd like to see Americans doing well and maybe winning a title. So, uh, you know, maybe it's time for one of our young American guys, maybe Taylor Fritz, you know, now that he's gotten some Wimbledon glory, he can have a little bit U.S. Open glory. Yeah, so I'm with you. I, I, I picked Novak. I think Rafa, you know, even if he gets healthy, it's just the turnaround time is too much. I think Vera is, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if Vera is going to play. Even if he plays, he won't be 100% team. Right. He's probably going to be healthy enough to play, but just not enough reps. So I'm going to go with Novak. On the women's side, I normally – Such an a, easy pick. That's an I know, easy – it's easy. It's, it's, it's easy. <laughs> but a good it's one. It's a good one. But I think if, if, Med, if him and Medvedev stay on opposite sides of the draw, from a temperament standpoint, I think Medvedev is – more likely to have a hiccup. Yeah, yeah. No, for sure. But you know what? So here's what's interesting, though. I mean, Novak is now number seven in the rankings. Yeah. If those rankings stay, because remember, no points in Wimbledon. He lost the title from the year before. 2,000 points gone. So he's seven. I mean, would that potentially be a quarterfinal between Medvedev and Joke? I mean, so the ranking situation, as much as I respect the ATP and the WTA for the stance they took, it's definitely going to throw a spanner into the works when we get to the U.S. Open and how the seedings and the placement of the draw could shake down. 
Yeah. And on the women's side, I'm going to pick an American. You know, I think that a player like Danielle Collins has the game and the temperament to number one, enjoy New York. Yeah. Enjoy it to the point where she wants to stay there a long time, right? <laughs> she uh, loves it. B, engage the hometown crowd in a way that I think helps her get through some of the moments. And I think, I don't, I think the court is too quick for Ons Jabor. I don't, I don't know that that court really sort of suits her game. Uh, I think Rybakina is, is going to have like the, the hangover effect, right? That a lot of young players have after winning a slam. So I'm, I'm, I think Danielle Collins would be the American. I think Coco is, is great. Always got a shot. I yes. look at her now as being steady. But she's somebody that I expect to see in round of 16 or quarters, but still very beatable at her age. You know what I mean? But could be somebody there. Second week, depending on who's not there, you could see her. Um, I like that pick. I like that pick. I, I like also, DC. She also has weapons. You know, she's willing to go for it. And I think in those quicker conditions in New York, I think you have to be aggressive minded these days. You know, the weapons are getting bigger and better than ever. I don't think you can win only defending. You've got to find a way to attack. She's got a great return up the line, and I, I really enjoy watching her play. Yeah. So that's my pick. But I also think on the men's side, look for Tommy. Tommy Paul has been playing some good ball, and I think that probably not ready to win it, but he's ready to, like, give us a story. Right? I think you look to see him in the second week. Uh, best I hope so. I, saw here. so. I hope so. I think those, all those young Americans are playing really well right now. With four of them in the fourth round of Wimbledon, obviously Taylor going to quarters, you know, Nakashima, Tiafo, and Paul, where they, they get a run going and with the kind of confidence they, they'll bring from London to the hard court season. Hopefully they all can stay healthy and, and have a legitimate shot to be around in the second week. Then we'll talk again. We'll see if our picks are standing up, man. <laughs> and, and, you know, one of the most notable absences is Jim Brady. When you think about American women, right, we have to line up our list of people that quietly missing from the tour right jen brady's one where i was looking up and i was like wow jen's still out she's somebody that when you look at like a sensi uh, you know the canadian swing you're somewhere you normally start to see her shake up a draw she's somebody that even if she comes back not enough reps not enough time um you know probably not going to happen but i think somebody that in addition to the the sloans the cocos the daniels uh sonia cannon right probably somebody where on the American side, missing on tour, yeah, um, yeah. you know, but, but look for Danielle. I think, I think Danielle's like in a place where that environment really suits her and she's sort of been quiet in New York. She has. She's been yeah. very quiet. Yeah. Which I, she doesn't like that. She likes a bit of noise and a little, you know, she likes some action. She loves it. <laughs> well, this has been a tennis.com podcast with the voice I call him the voice, the analyst, the host. He can be the technician. He can read the commercials, the voice, everything. This is Lee Shiver. He is, um, you know, sort of a gold standard in terms of tennis commentating, has been for years. Uh, a great player in his own right and a great mind. And honestly, a great mentor to any new person getting into broadcasting uh, and commentating. Uh, so I want to thank you for, A, your mentorship to me, uh, B for being who you are and B to C taking the time with us on the show today. Wow, too kind. Thank you very much. Thanks, Lee.